So welcome to Office Hours, a place where students in a virtual program can have the experience of sitting in a professor's office like you would in a brick and mortar uh, institution. And today I have Dr. Angela Bathia, who I am just so excited to have, partly because uh, we're like therapy cousins in a way. We both, <laughs> we both were uh, awarded SAMHSA's Minority Fellowship, but for our respective disciplines. Um, and Ryan and I have been dying to talk to someone about motivational interviewing because we feel like that is the missing link. Um, because if people aren't coming in, if they're not motivated, if they aren't really engaged in what you have to offer them, if whatever you have to offer them doesn't match what they even want, um, then nothing, no matter how wonderful your interventions, matters. So we are just, I mean, just so excited. Um, and um, I'm always excited when I see somebody who looks like me doing incredible stuff. Uh, it's inspiring. So to say all of that, um, why don't you give us a brief introduction and then we'll dive right in because I have a ton of questions to ask you. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that introduction. I'm really excited to be on this podcast and to devote an entire episode to motivational interviewing. So thanks to Jordan. Thanks to Ryan for having me. And so, yes, my name is Angela Bethia Walsh. My last name is hyphenated. I'm a licensed psychologist. I have a private practice on the north side of Atlanta, and I really love being in private practice. I get to do various things. I have a therapy side to my practice where I see people, mainly in individual therapy, who have any intersection of substance use disorders, problematic substance use, trauma history, relationship concerns. I believe everyone who comes to therapy has a problem with a relationship somewhere in their lives. Love working with people around behavioral health issues, chronic pain management, and cultural issues in, in just development, racial identity development, sexual identity development. So some sort of combination of all that. I love working with people with that as sort of like my ideal client. And then I have a evaluation side of my practice where I do substance use evaluations with Pretty much, I'd say, uh, teens, adults, professional athletes as well. And I also do training. So mainly motivational interviewing trainings. Love talking with healthcare providers around how they can better engage their clients. And just really, really enjoy that side of my practice as well. That's really taken off these past few years, which might be in part how you found me. So anyway, it's good that we can all connect. Yeah, I had a buddy who went through one of your uh, programs and spoke very, very highly of you. And so that's how I reached out. I was like, oh, well, there we go. Um, but I wanted to backtrack to something that you just said. You said you also work with people who need some sort of pain control, pain management? Yes. Mm-hmm. So usually people who show up in my practice with pain concerns are people who just have trouble coping with pain, might be working with some providers where maybe their pain is under-medicated, but maybe they don't really know how to assert themselves with their providers to ask for more pain medication, or, you know, just find some different ways to better get the pain under a tighter grip, really. And 
I also work with people who rely on medication as a sort of a quick fix to pain, or they sort of think that my medication is going to be a magic bullet. I'm not going to have pain for the rest of my life. And that's really not true. So really enjoy working with people to sort of shift their beliefs around how they manage their pain, their expectations about how they manage their pain, help them to increase sense of control. That is really an integrated sort of plan well-rounded plan that works best for people well sometimes it's medication sometimes not but sometimes you know they need to add on a behavioral component sometimes a spiritual component there's a lot of literature that says a lot of the pain experience is very psychological so therapists really can really help people a lot in terms of like sort of readjusting those things and hoping they can get their pain in better control and really just boost their quality of life that's really what that's all about so it sounds like you're you're helping them more with the with the expectations and the cognitions rather than Mm -hmm. providing them with like a mindfulness-based approach. That as well, mindfulness as well, just learning to tolerate pain. Just like I talk about that sort of like as clouds or waves, finding a way to surf the wave, to just tolerate it so that, you know, jump on your surfboard and ride the wave until the pain crashes. And so I do work that into my work as well. Pretty much therapy, I would say, mindfulness, body work is a part of my theoretical approach as well in general. So do you do any, like, hypnosis or any uh, biofeedback along with with that? Or is that mostly um, through, you know, talk therapy? I have. I don't do biofeedback at my practice. I have done biofeedback at, so... Another sort of part of my world has been doing some consultation work in college counseling centers. And there's one area college counseling center I helped to develop a performance and performance enhancement sort of performance anxiety clinic for college students. And one of the things we do is biofeedback to help sort of students tolerate sort of anxiety and help them better perform, whether that be public speaking, sports, fine arts, whatever, but sort of transferring back to my practice, I don't do biofeedback there, just more of just sort of body work, just helping people know where pain is, tension is in their body, release that, find some ways to sort of other ways to manage that, simple breathing exercises, visual imagery, things of that nature. Okay. So... Um, how did you even get into the therapy world? I, I didn't. Um, there, I had no models for getting into this world, and I kind of got into this um, field for the wrong reasons. Um, I was looking at a way to study people and help people, um, but I really wasn't trying to like do therapy, and that's how I fell into this field. Um, and so for you, how did you even, like, get into this field? Which, the cool thing about you is that you're also at the top of the field, you know? I mean, whenever us MFTs go into a room with a psychologist, we have to just get on one knee and kiss, kiss their face before we do anything. <laughs> you know? Okay. <laughs> so you're at the top of the pyramid, you know? So how did, how did you get at the top of the food chain? Apex predator. <laughs> That's funny, right? That's a good question. I sort of fell into it also. Actually, I was just telling someone this story last week. They wanted to know how I even found psychology in general. And basically, I said I was a 
freshman at Howard University had taken the high school level psychology course, or it really it was like called behavior change or something, but really fell in love with it. And then went to claim a major at Howard. And I was like, well, literally was this, I don't really want to study history, although it's important. I'm not a math person. I sort of was just sort of like process of elimination and I found psychology and just loved it. And my professors were awesome and dynamic and not only learned about psychology theory, but also just in general, but also learned about the contributions of psychologists of color to the field of psychology. And we learned about why is there an association of black psychologists? Why is there an association of Asian psychologists and things of that nature? And after that, I think once I sort of got immersed in this experience, I was thinking like, what would I like to do next? And some of the professors at Howard were saying, well, if you'd like to go to graduate school and, you know, become a psychologist, maybe do therapy, these are some of the things that you have to do to prepare for in terms of being a, uh, to apply for PhD programs. And I just sort of just followed the road. I'm like, okay, so I, one of the things was jump into a research lab and then I learned more about um, psychological research and then I was introduced to therapy, really. I mean, I knew about what therapy was before then, but really just had no clue of it beyond that. But anyway, so then, yeah, just uh, learn more about therapy and how people can benefit and obviously learn more about that when I was a master's student at Temple and just never looked back. I really enjoy working with people in therapy. It's sort of an opportunity to cross paths with people you otherwise would never cross paths with and get to know people. Obviously, it's rewarding, you know, in terms of help working with people. So, it, yeah, it's sort of just by accident. I just sort of fell into it, which actually I would say serendipity really plays a huge role in how I built my career anyway. So sort of falls in line with that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've definitely seen the same in my own trajectory. Um, because initially I was into anthropology and basically the question came up was how can I use this to help people and systems theory and family therapy you know looking at the greater sort of context was sort of the obvious sort of dovetail of those two loves you know what I mean Um, so it sounds like a similar sort of path of oh I was on this path that I liked and then I ran into into this other thing and it kind of took me in a different direction right because um how life works. How long, this is just, you know, uh, purely s- selfish. How long did it take you to complete your doc program? How long did it take me to complete the doctoral program? And actually, pretty much five years to the day that I started it. So I went into the doctoral program with a master's degree in counseling psychology from Temple. And then, yeah, I started my doctoral degree, I think, like around... August 30th of 2000 and defended my dissertation August 29th of 2005, which was pretty crazy. And so that was my plan. I was like, I'm on a five-year plan. No more. And I... How much work did you have? Graduate... uh, In the doctoral program, we had... I'd say three years of coursework. That's including taking summer classes. And then my fourth year, I did a pre-doctoral internship at a VA hospital in North Jersey. Is that right? <laughs> I can't remember. And then, uh, yeah, no, yeah. So maybe like three, three and a half. And then I was 
sort of cruising me on my dissertation and did my internship. Yeah. I had to think back. That was, that was a long time ago. How did you, how did you get, so I finished mine back in, in August. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank yes. you. And um, I cannot imagine doing more school. But you went on to go do a postdoc, which, I mean, I had a fellowship while I was in. I'm doing certification in uh, emotionally focused therapy. Awesome. Those are so much lighter than coursework and than what I imagine a postdoc experience is. So, like, what drove you to say, you know what, two more years of school, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And I'll drink this poison. (laughs) So, coming from a counseling psychology background, I will tell you, my... Research and clinical interests were in like working with people with mood, mainly mood concerns, anxiety, adjustment related concerns. This, this is probably midway through my trajectory. And then I became interested working with people with substance use problems. Was that with the uh, SAMHSA fellowship or was that after or was that before? before? Mm-hmm. It was before, yeah. So I was working as a graduate assistant in the counseling center. This is at Lehigh University. And just saw it as an opportunity to just, first of all, learn more about what substance use is, sorry, what substance use disorders are. And I was working with students who had been sanctioned to go to the counseling center and get treatment for whatever reason, maybe like underage drinking or there was some, you know, adverse event in a frat house, things went wrong, police got called, they ended up going to the counseling center and always thought about substance use problems sort of as the tip of the iceberg. There were some things going on underneath and just wanted to learn about how those intersect. So anyway, had some experience there at the counseling center and then yep, applied for the minority fellowship program under the American Associ- sorry, American Psychological Association. And received that funding from SAMHSA. And then by the time I finished my doctoral program, so this is after doing like a pre-doctoral internship at a VA hospital, which I had tons of work experience with veterans with co-occurring disorders, including substance use disorders, really just wanted to round out my training since I, again, had come from a place of learning and studying racial identity development, racially distressed among different people of African descent, sort of then started to expand my sort of understanding and clinical interests and then just wanted to round out my training. So then I found a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical health and addiction psychology, little, literally across the river, the Hudson River, right in New York City, and got it and loved it. And then, yes, stayed for three years. It was supposed to be a one-year commitment, and it was a new postdoc. So they were sort of ironing things out on their end. Mainly, it was supposed to be a split clinical research fellowship where I would work in Addiction Institute of New York and do inpatient-outpatient therapy around substance use problems and then spend half my time uptown at St. Luke's Hospital, Mount Mount Sinai St. Luke's Hospital, working on National Institutes of Health clinical trials, studying motivational interviewing. So we'll probably talk a lot about that. And that's how I really dived into my training in MI. Loved it so much that I just wanted to stay another year and learn how to use MI with another sort of population and learn how to use MI in different kinds of settings and things. And then also expand 
took a third year to further expand my practice. So I learned how to do like bariatric, like weight loss surgery evaluations and things of that nature. So again, I just sort of fell into the next opportunity, took advantage of it, saw another door open, walked through that door and just, you know, kept moving forward. And so finally it was time for me to get licensed and go away. So <laughs> no fourth year of a postdoc. Time to actually, you know, go out and make some money. Probably. No more being a professional student. Oh, <laughs> right. man. It's fun, well, though. But, yeah. yeah. You, um, um, so, yes, yeah, so let's talk about motivational interviewing. Okay. Can you, can you give us a brief uh, overview of, like, what it is? I don't think most students are introduced to it, but it is something that once you're out of grad school um, – and once you're involved in, in the world outside of grad school, it's very popular, very well known, um, mm-hmm. and is almost the go-to treatment, not treatment, it's definitely a, a go-to tool that you have to have if you're going to do any sort of substance abuse work. And that's that's where it came out of, if I'm re- remembering correctly. Yeah, we think about it, I mean, it's described as a treatment, as an intervention. I think about it as a communication style. So it's a way of having a conversation with people about change. Yes, it's an evidence-based intervention. You know, it's been tested in clinical trials. It's shown to be efficacious all that. So I think about it, though, as a way of having a different kind of conversation about change with people who are ambivalent about change, who feel sort of two ways about change. You know, I know... most of us, right? (laughs) Right. So that's the thing. That's... The beauty of MI is that it really is very respectful of humanity and what it means to be human. We all go through this process. Ambivalence is a natural part of the change process. We all have to go through it in order to actually change, right? So January 1st of every year, most people have on their New Year's resolution list, what? I want to go lose weight. So I want to go to the gym or I want to work out more. And then people usually show up to the gym March, April. So, you know, or they get in there and they get their new membership and then it sort of fizzles out because that's what we do. We're asking people to adopt lifestyle changes and who ever in history has adopted a lifestyle change and then 100% stuck to it all the time and adhered to that all the time, right? So we go through this back and forth. I want to, I don't want to. And so the purpose of MI is to have this conversation about change in the collaborative way and to help people resolve their ambivalence about change. You know, you think about ambivalence sort of like on a balance part of the, there's one side that says I want to change. There's one side that says I don't want to change. We want to help tip the balance toward change, but in a way that's consistent with the person's value system and their goals and their agendas. And in that, we are strategically identifying, selecting, and responding to language around change and sort of helping people to sculpt their language so that it's more consistent with the kind of person they want to be, if that makes any sense. That's sort of think about you know, a general definition of MI, how it works, who it's for. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like um, you help people to talk about the reasons that surround that sort of uh, double-mindedness, right? They kind of want yeah. to, but they kind of don't want to. 
So he happens to talk about the reasons that surround both of those, and then highlights the reasons um, that allow them to be consistent with how they see themselves. Is that? Yes. It's really important to explore both sides of ambivalence. As helping providers, we tend to want to jump on the side that says, no, but you need to do this. You need to change. And if you don't change, then this is going to happen. If you don't carry out your child's behavior plan consistently, then the child is not going to, you know, the child's going to test your boundaries or test your limits. This is not really going to work. You know, we want to make it right. And we talk about in, am I, you know, that comes from a good place, like a really good place as helping providers. We're very compassionate. We care about the people we work with. And so when we see a discrepancy between what they're doing and who they say they want to be, we often want to close that and say, no, 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 do this. Or if you do this, you'll get this result. And I promise you it's going to work for you. And so what we know is that when we sort of push up on people a bit, they peck and they say well no I don't want to do that that's not going to work for me even if what we're saying makes sense it's just many people especially ambivalent people don't respond well to persuasion so it's really important to explore that side so tell me more about this you know not wanting to carry through this behavior plan with your child what's happening there oh yeah so it's really time consuming like it's really hard for you to you know go find the sheet go find the rewards pick out rewards like it's really hard for you to fit into this schedule uh, fit this into your schedule. So you know, through empathy, for example, you want to convey some sense of acceptance around it. Not agreement, but acceptance. Accepting that whatever they say is true for them. So explore these both sides. It's part of them that doesn't want to change, part of this part of them that does want to change. We create discrepancy that you're doing this and it's not aligning with who you say you want to be what's happening there. So we want to create a little bit of dissonance there. And one of my temple professors once said, he used to talk about, you know, and actually he's a marriage and family therapist, Emil Sukar, Dr. Sukar, used to talk about it's important to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So people who are comfortable with what they're doing are not really going to, going to want to change, right? So we sort of want to make them uncomfortable with what they're doing. And that, we think, is a pathway for people to change. And what, so I have so many thoughts running through my head because I'm okay. so excited. Um, We're hanging out. And the thing, I think that is, so for, first of all, what you're saying is something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And it's something um, that, I have tr- that I have adopted in how I interact with people. Now, to say that, I am not in my trained. I am, I have read a few books and, um, so that means, you know, that I have an inch to, you know, your, you know, oceans deep of understanding about this. But in the small ways that I've been able to do this, um, it has been transformative. Because basically what we're saying is, and this is the way that I think about it is, whatever is going on for this person makes sense given their context and their history. So... It may not be, and this is, you know, people will say things to me, and I'm like, no, it's not right. People will say things like, maybe it's not right for them. And I go, no, it is right. Like, if you do this, this will happen. But there's a fit that makes it not right. You know? Right. So that's, anyway. um, And talking about all the reasons, which are usually good and make sense for that person, 
for them not to do whatever it is. Usually, in my experience, loosens everything up. Because when you push against, when you pull, when you go in one direction, someone is going in the opposite direction. There's this tension that is created. Even if you're going in the direction that they say they want to go, if they aren't actually right. going in that direction, you're creating this tension. And when you can say, "Hey, like, what's going? Oh, you know what? You, you have a great reason for not making your appointments because it's kind of weird to come in here and talk to someone who." is strange and you don't really know and talk about things you might be uncomfortable talking about it is almost like magic how things will just loosen up and the energy the flow will come back into the room it sure is um and the thing so you're and i'm like oh man this is so good i'm so excited (laughs) Um, the thing that i do not understand about mi is once you have someone's own reasons for doing something how then is that translated into them doing something else, right? If we're sitting down and I say, hey, um, you know, you're talking to me about performance anxiety um, and, you know, you're telling me that you really want this job promotion and so you have to give, give these public speeches. The thing that's going on in my mind is, okay, you've told me you want to do this, but you're not coming to your sessions, and I can right, talk about all the good reasons, right? Why mm-hmm. that doesn't, why that makes sense, why you're not coming, right? But mm-hmm. how does that bridge to them doing behaviors that are different? Okay. Is that just from the growing of the ambiguity? Is that um, something else that I don't understand? One of the things that it's important to remember is that knowledge is not enough for people to change. <laughs> for example, we, people often okay, know okay. that they need Let me, let me just, okay. See, this is the thing that I say all the time, and no uh-huh. one believes me. People are like, you just gotta educate people. You just gotta, you know, and raise awareness. I'm like, you have never, tr- like, you must be living in a reality that doesn't exist. Because that right. never changes anyone. <laughs> like, just having this knowledge doesn't make someone do anything different. So like, yeah. Now, might work for and you know. So, MI isn't for everybody, right? It's mainly for people who are ambivalent about change. So, if we're thinking about like the trans theoretical stages of change, if you're all familiar with that, so like pre-contemplation, contemplation, contemplation, preparation. So, MI is mainly for people in pre-contemplation who say, "Oh, I've had ten DUIs in the past year, but I don't have a drinking problem." or who are on the fence about change. So, you know, they kind of want to change, they kind of don't want to change. So for these folks in this readiness, this, these stages of change, knowledge is not enough. You know, they often know that they need to take their high blood pressure medication in order to keep their blood pressure under control and keep their stroke risk down. They often know that they need to, you know, practice safe sex methods to prevent transmission of STI. They often know that they need to be more assertive than aggressive when they feel flooded or, you know, when they get activated by trauma or something like that. So the knowledge is already there. You are bringing this to what how do we get them to the next phase? And so that's what really MI is all about. I often, for example, I do evaluations with NFL players. 
And these are substance use evaluations. I'm one of the testing psychologists for the program for substances of abuse. So I do like full batteries with players. And then I do a feedback session, a follow-up feedback session using MI. And there are some players who binge, engage in binge alcohol use. When I ask them, so in MI, we typically, before giving information, we like to elicit first what people know already. So again, based on the assumption, they already know what it is. We want to have an understanding of that. I ask them, what is binge drinking? They can pretty much tell me. Like they may not be they might miss a piece here or there, but they pretty much would understand they're doing it anyway. So knowledge is not a prerequisite for change. How do we get people to move toward change? That really is the heart of MI. So in MI, there's four processes of change. We first have to, there's the engaging process, right? Like we can't do any sort of cool interventions if we have no relationship. We obviously have to have a focus of our work what is the target behavior? It's, you know, um, problem drinking, it's smoking, it's whatever, uh, aggressive communication. Then there's the evoking phase. So that's the heart of MI. How do we evolve people's strengths, ideas, values, goals, and how do we strategically attach that to what they're doing and then create a discrepancy? Again, so it's, it's, it's helping people to feel uncomfortable with what they're doing. So, for example, what might that look like? That might look like, you know, so you are, what's really important to you is to be a good father. Like, you want to be a good father, you want to, you know, be there for your wife, and you want to start this family, and... Not that I'm talking directly to you, Jordan, but I'm sort of using... You no, know. man, I mean, let's just go with it. Role play. Like, I'm, I'm down. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. I want to be a great you, dad. You want to uh, be a great... And so, like, yeah. And, and so, and... And I drink occasionally. You know, okay. Yeah, and I'm wondering how this drinking fits into that or not. Well, you know, I do it on the weekends when uh, she's, a, she's, she's, she's not at home. So, I don't think it really, you know bothers her yeah so you know drinking is a part of your life you really find some ways to put some limits around it so that you're only doing it on the weekends so it doesn't sort of seep into your week and get in the way of your family time or to be family time right yeah i mean i occasionally do it during the week but the, i mean i don't want to be a liar right like i'm always honest but uh yeah sometimes on the week you know weekends i'll have a few and I don't mm -hmm. do it when she's around, so I don't see why it's a big deal. So that's your time to release, have fun, decompress, is really drink when your wife is not around. It's like your protected time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I may pause, what, there, there's a juncture. So if you, let's say, were in the pre-contemplation stage of change, like let's say you were engaging in binge drinking and... My strategy there would be to provide information. I know we just said this, and I know I'm going to sound like really like a hypocrite, but do it in a way that helps you understand that if you are binge drinking, for example, helps you understand what the risks are. So I'll have a conversation around risks. And I might say, and you know, just for the sake of like some examples, like let's say I was working with someone who, back to the athlete. Uh, um, or example, let's say I'm working with someone who's binge drinking and they're concerned about 
their athletic performance. Maybe they're, you know, running out of steam quicker than they'd like to be. They don't feel like they're in their best shape. They don't have the stamina they want. I might guide a conversation around drinking and bringing that again to the heart of the person, which is athletic performance. What do you know about how drinking affects athletic performance? I would start with that. And again, sometimes people know, sometimes there's gaps in information and, you know, not to push the information. I would then step back and say, you know, what do you think about that? The fact that we know alcohol can affect athletic performance, can, you know, affect concentration, marijuana can affect reaction time, things of that nature. Where, where does that go for you? So you're giving the information, but not pushing it and being persuasive, but rather letting someone sort of adjust that and sit with that and let it be uncomfortable for a so bit. Let me let me jump in to make sure that I'm <laughs> understanding. Okay. And then you would present that information in a way that it is in contrast what the person wants. Right. Now, is it necessarily about what they want or about who they see themselves to be? Is it about identity or what they try to do? All of the above. Okay. So it can be who they want to be, what kind of parent they want to be, what kind of son, daughter, student, athlete. It could be, you know, um, just so, sort of what they, who they want to become. You know, they might think about their best life. Right. And so, so that's the heart of it. I sort of like going into that. So the... So in the, the mini role play that we just did, what we didn't have yet was how this was a problem for me, right? Right. If I'm drinking on the weekends and she's not here, we would need to figure, oh, how is this a problem? And it would be something like, um, well, she leaves on the weekends because I am drinking. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so then you would say something like, so you want to be a good husband, and then at the same time, this drinking is part of the reason why she's 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 leaving like that so yes at the same time my strategy would be for to set it up so that you verbalize that and not me because mi is based on part sort of self-perception theory that people will argue people are more likely to change when they themselves argue for it so i might start a conversation like another sort of arm of the conversation might be excuse me um so you know what are the benefits of it like what are the upsides of your drinking what do you really get from it and then I might just explore just for a little you know what are some of the downsides where do you think it gets in the way of you you know being in the way you want to be in the world or with your wife or you know whatever's important to you so I'm always going back to what's most important to this person what's in their heart basically what do they value? How is this fitting with what you're doing and, and, what, and how is this not fitting with what you're doing? So the goal is to set up so that the person, the client, gives you that information. And then when we hear kinds of change talk, so for example, so that's one of the mechanisms of change in MI. One of those things that we know makes MI work well is client language around change, not unique to MI, but we did or some folks in the MI world did some research on client language and in general, and there was an acronym that fell out of that. And so there's specific kinds of uh, preparatory language, so desire, ability, reasons, need, that's all change talk. And then there's more mobilizing language, commitment, action, and taking steps to change. So our goal is to, when we hear change talk, 
reinforce it by using reflections, affirmations, summaries, <laughs> emphasizing values and things. But the goal is to strengthen it to the point where it gets to more mobilizing language. So you let know me, what? Let me, let me I think I'm going to try cutting back. Soon. I want you okay. to come with me to the daily That's a classic <laughs> Actually, when I was training in, uh, in my years ago, one of, so and all these, we would oh, we called man. real plays so that we, in experiential exercises, we use real life situations that we feel ambivalent about. Mine was always about my car, which is very funny. Like, should I keep my car, my little Mazda Protege, or should I get a new one? Whatever. Um, but that, yes, is definitely a classic, a classic example of ambivalence for sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so you're waiting for the person to talk about sort of those when you said that a lot of like forks in the road so you're, so you're waiting for the person to come to one of these forks in the road where they say something like yeah I do want something to be different and but I don't know if I can do that right now, or but I don't know if I really want to do whatever and so then you yeah. explore that sort of ambivalence more yeah. yeah there are these certain kinds of reflections in my we call double sided reflections and they are developed exactly for processing ambivalence. So, and we use them very strategically. So, let's say, like, somebody shoot out a statement of ambivalence. Yeah, I think that I should stop drinking, but it's how I relax. Okay. So, if I want you to verbalize more change language, I will first reflect what we call sustained talk. So that's any argument about staying the same. I drink to relax. That's a reason to not change, right? So that's preparatory language, but toward not changing. <laughs> and then I really want to stop drinking. I'm really thinking about stopping any use. That's change language. It's sort of, um, you know, it suggests, or yes, yeah, you said, I need to, that's me. That's, change language. So I would start the double-sided reflection by saying you really drink to relax at the same time you think you really need to stop. So I'm ending the double-sided reflection on change language, hoping, first of all, knowing that's the last thing you're going to hear in hopes of creating more change language. Now let's say you were really talking a lot of sustained talk, like I want to stop drinking at the same time. How else am I going to relax? Like, you know how stressful my day is? This is, or my week is? This is the only thing in my life I have control over. I go into my man cave on the weekends and, you know, go at it. And, you know, so, you know, to the point where my wife can't even find me or whatever. Like, I want that to be my protective space. And I might ride with that for a second. Like, yeah, you you're thinking about stopping. At the same time, you can't even imagine your life without drinking. I mean, you can't even imagine a way to sort of take the air out of the balloon, the stress out of your life without drinking. This is such an important part of your week that it just seems like impossible to you. So the strategy there is I want this person to hear that I get it. I get it that, you know, there's a huge part of them that doesn't want to change. And I, I hang around there for a bit and as soon as I hear change talk, I go with that change talk. Forget the sustained talk. Because the research also says if we hang out 
with sustained talk for too long, then people actually talk themselves out of change. So once we hear change talk, we ride with the change talk. Man. Uh, so there's one more question that I have to ask you about, because this was my okay. favorite MI concept. Um, and this is, I mean, for me, this was like the fulcrum where I began to be like, holy crap, that's it. The writing reflex. And you touched on this a little earlier. Um, but I was hoping you could really kind of distill it a little bit more. I miss, I'm sorry. I missed a little bit of the first thing you said. Could you uh, say it? The writing re reflex? Writing? Oh, writing reflex. Yes. Uh -huh. To me, that was like, I know that feeling. Ah, and yes. That okay. is gold. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. And I think it's. I think it's probably, I think it's the cause of 95% of therapeutic failures. Because mm -hmm. I, think, I think therapists step on that yeah. all the time and they yeah. blow up their, their whole process so they can't even get to the, to the good stuff. And they don't even know it. <laughs> they're just, they don't they're even just, know it. Just, it's, it's almost not fair. <laughs> it's almost not fair. It really almost isn't. <laughs> it's not fair. So part of that is because well, that's how we're trained. what it is. Because I don't think people know what it is. We're tr okay. So, so the writing reflex is sort of reflex that we have as providers, you know, to sort of close the gap when we see things aren't going right. So, for example, I remember, you know, you've got that friend, you go out to dinner. And, you know, you sprinkle a little salt in your meal and your friend's like, you shouldn't use salt. That's really bad for you. And it's coming from a good place, I'm sure, right? They want you to be healthy. At the same time, our natural reaction is to be like, you can't tell me what to do. So that's where the writing reflex one goes wrong. That's one way. So that's let me, one can I give you I another example? Yeah. Just to make sure that I'm on the right page. Yeah, sure. Um, I just, I just lost my example. <laughs> just went completely out of my head. Uh, I have many of those moments these yeah, days. Sorry, <laughs> it's totally gone. That's okay. Give me I'm, another example. I'm sure it will come back. I'm sure it will. <laughs> so that's one way. That's one way the the writing reflex can go wrong. Another way it can go wrong is. So you have a client, let's say working, or sorry, let's say receiving treatment in an inpatient unit, and they've got a full treatment team. They've got an activity therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, right? They have a problem, and they go to each person on the treatment team individually with their problem, looking for a solution. And if each person on the treatment team uses the writing reflex, how many answers do you think this person's going to get? One. Uh, Ryan, how many answers do you think this person's going to get? Uh, he's going to get a different one. Yeah. Yeah. So from each person. So that's another place where the writing reflex, reflex can go wrong. If, it's, if there are five people in the treatment oh, team, you're going to get five different answers, right? And they might all be great answers. They're all, though, coming from outside the client and not the client. So, so then what is the client the client's to do? sort of, yeah. not, not ambivalence, but ambiguity about what action to take? Yeah, like, I don't know. The psychiatrist says, try this. 
The therapist says, try this. The social worker says, try this. I don't know which step to take next. Yeah, like even I see that playing out a lot in like (laughs) my setting because a lot of the times I see people outpatient. So they'll get one thing from me and then the main thing they get from the psychiatrist who maybe I don't even interact with is uh, med compliance. And then they get uh, your biggest thing, your from the case manager, your biggest priority should be to get this low-income housing stuff figured out first. And, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm following it. Yeah, like if the client says, for example, what should be my next step in treatment? Right? Let's start. So the psychiatrist might say one thing. The therapist might say another thing. The social worker might, social worker might say another thing. Instead of changing the conversation and saying, well, if you could take a half step forward, what would you like your next next step to be? What would you want it to look like? How? Where would you want to go? Where do you want to live? How? What do you need to thrive? Right. So changing the direction of the conversation so that those answers are coming from the client. I really believe. And I know this is going to sound really kind of corny, but I believe people already have the answers within them. It's just up to me to sort of help them light up the searchlight in the dark and help them see it. We also believe that everybody's motivated to do something. We, we don't believe that people are unmotivated or, oh, this person, they have no motivation. Everybody is motivated. It's up to us to help people figure out where they're motivated and to move things along. Again, find out what's here. It might be, I want to be more independent or things of that nature. So the writing reflex, I also think, comes from this sort of, the inertia is like, coming from like where how we were trained as helping providers we're mainly trained by asking questions we love asking questions we think the way to help people is to ask as many questions as possible and to get as much information from people as possible and so that we can help people change and questions are really good if used sparingly we use them very sparingly in mind we try to use open-ended questions to help allow people into the conversation. We believe the client should be doing half the talking in general. There's some asterisks to that, depending on who you're working with, like people who are severely depressed or, um, you know, responding to psychosis or, you know, something cognitive going on. And instead of, um, instead of that, we use reflections a lot. So, and probably two or three times reflections than questions. And to guide the conversation, really, and to help people change. We also believe, like, reflections are different from questions and that reflections convey a sense of acceptance, which opens it up, right, in any therapy that we do. People are going to tell you more when they feel accepted. We don't get that same effect. Because I think this is such a big point, is we think that the way to elicit information is to ask questions. And that Mm -hmm. is false. That is a lie that is taught because people don't know anything different. The way right. to elicit information is through reflections. Mm. If you repeat back to people what they say, if you reflect it back to them, they will go on to elaborate. Yes. And if you ask them a question, either they will go into this, uh, I don't know, because they weren't, now you're bringing attention to what they were doing naturally. And this has been my experience. Mm-hmm. Or 
they might feel a pressure to sort of respond in a certain way and then they get but if you just match them and say what they're saying like they will just it's almost mm-hmm. like magic and yeah. they don't want to tell you more they, 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 they don't like pull back yes and the best reflections say what people are not saying so it's sort of like Maya Angelou's quote there's no greater agony in side of you like an untold story so the best reflections help people to tell their story what's underneath the surface these are the reflections that move the conversation along right so 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 i know people might be listening and being like well you know ai doesn't sound any different than a theoretical approach because we really do find reflections across many theoretical approaches that's very true what's different is how we use reflections we use them in a very strategic way we're highlighting in our reflections values goals we're strategically tying that to target behaviors it's just the uh, the way we work with them is very different. So, man, this has been such a good conversation. How do you... <laughs> I'm just going to come to Georgia. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Take the money and come to a, a training. I'll then do it. <laughs> um, so, well, I'm going to let Ryan ask a question. I've been asking way too many questions. If you if you want, I have a ton. Did, did you just send it over to me because you were cutting out? I, I, I don't know what you I said. I okay, cool. If, if, if you want to ask a question, <laughs> go ahead and ask because I will just keep keep going. Um, I think that uh, one of my biggest questions, one of my biggest questions is, um, for one, how do you develop? In yourself, what have you noticed in how you've developed patience for doing work with motivation? Because I think that for me, for me, a lot of my like shortcomings in working with people's motivation is they'll they'll give me that little bit of change talk, and I'm like, awesome, yeah, that's it, let's go, yeah, and uh-huh. then I'm gone and right. just left my client behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yeah, first off, just what would be the things that you've noticed in yourself that have helped you develop kind of the patience to sit in that stage for maybe what's longer than is comfortable as a therapist? These are great questions, you guys. Thank you so much. Um, like, I could talk to you guys all night. Um, I think the gift that MI has given me, or I guess maybe what I found in MI is I don't have to do all the work. My job is to set it up so that they do the work. The client does the work. The client argues for change. And MI is about whether it's about supporting people in deciding whether or not they want to change. Do they want to change or not? That's really what motivational interviewing is about. So I am not really, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm, I care about them. I certainly want the best for my clients. At the same time, there's something in practicing MI that allows me to step, step away and be separate and say, you know what? I have to support this person whether or not they're going to change. And I have to be okay with either way, either direction they want to go. 
So it sort of allows me to sit back and have a latte and just, you know, see what happens. I also find this is very common, a common comment in my workshops that, yes, healthcare providers also, when we are trained, we're trained to think, oh, we hear the client start, you know, talking about change, then we ride with that. We're like, great, you want to get back to work? Let's get you connected with a vocational counselor. Let's get you connected with a career you know, counseling or career counselor or what have you. Let's have you look at this resource, connect you with this resource. And we want to also pay attention to or explore, even if just for a little bit, the side of them that may not be wanting to change. Like I hear like this is, you know, let's say you're working with maybe, I'm just trying to think of a situation that you guys might come along Excuse me, come um, close to an um, MFT. But go back to the let's say guy who's binge drinking. Okay, we can go back to the binge drinking guy. Let's say working with somebody who shows up to a program. Yeah, I drink 15 beers when I drink, only on the weekends. And I'm at a point where I want to stop drinking altogether. And so, usually, not usually, but there are many healthcare providers who are like, great, let's you know, work on relapse prevention skills. Let's versus just sort of hanging out with, well, yeah, it sounds like you made a big decision of yourself. How'd you get there for one? I wonder how you made that shift. So there's sort of this curiosity. What's happening for people? I'm curious. I'm really curious about this process of change. And then I might, so you know, explore that a little you. bit with some reflections. Yeah. Because I think that that was huge. Because what I just heard you say was, when someone comes in and they've said they've made a big decision, I don't mm-hmm. talk about the decision. I talk about the process that led them to the, to the decision. I want to yeah. stay in that energy and reflect that energy. And mm-hmm. I'm guessing that that's because you want to deepen that, that energy because that's what propelled them to make the change. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Like, how did people make that shift? So first, my first reaction was an affirmation, which was, wow, you thought a lot about this. And you're, you know, you pretty much made your mind up. That's awesome. I'm curious, how'd you make that shift? So it was like an affirmation and an open question. And, you know. I think that's such a fundamental difference. Because I think, like, I don't think people are even trained to hear the difference in that. Because people, I think most therapists would say, oh, I do do that. I, I ask about that. But what they're actually doing, if you were to watch them, is they're talking about how the person can make the change. Which yes. is different than talking about the energy that led the person to make the change. Those are different things. Mm-hmm. And actually, even in my literature on trainings, people often inflate how they're doing MI. They often say, you know, I'm doing it really well. Or basically, you're right. Like people, what they say they're doing doesn't always match up with what they're actually doing. But that's actually in any therapy, really. That's how we have clinical supervision. It's no different, right? Um, so, yes, I think that is correct. So people would say, oh, well, I, I explore the ambivalence when they probably just pretty much ride with the change talk and run the risk of leaving the client in the dust. So almost running close to that writing, not quite there, but sort of parallel to it. And also exploring, yeah, I wonder what you might... Miss about binge drinking. Like, what might you be giving up? Not hanging out there for too long, 
but what do you think this change might cost you? How do you know when it's time to, to move from that? As soon as you hear change talk. So, you know, they might say, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to have to give up, you know, drinking with my friends all day during football season on Sundays. That's going to be terrible. At the same time, I've got to make this change because I've got high blood pressure or this is affecting my health and you know, I want to be around for my kids. I want to get more out of my life and drinking just doesn't really fit with that. Once you hear that, you ride with change talk. There's no need to even explore sustained talk. That is I like guess, such, oh my, that is just music. Yeah, and that, that in particular, that brings up a question for me, because like in that example that you go with, uh, you stick with, um, you stick with the, I got to, you know, lower my blood pressure because I need to be healthy for my kids. Uh, and a part of me leans more, my knee jerk goes more towards the paradox because mostly just because I'm a little bit of a punk and like my like initial reaction to the client is, well, why would you want to keep living that much longer if you don't have time to spend with your friends? If you're going to have to cut out your friends that you're drinking with, why, why, what would you want to live for? Isn't Mm -hmm. it all about your friends and stuff like that? Uh So I don't know that that's where my mind like goes initially. What do you see as like the differences in those two like trains of thought? I think there's a place to be paradoxical in that we've got some uh, we've got some um, reflections that do that, siding with the negative, for example. They're all very strategic. The intention is what's most important. What are what are we what are we what language are we hoping to sculpt? Or what language are we hoping will fall out of that? That we don't so in MI, we can be paradoxical with the goal of increasing change talk. We believe that siding with this ambivalence, this side when people are saying, you know, I don't want to be doing this, you know, cutting back on my drinking. This is terrible. I don't want to give up time with my friends. And we might be, we might say something like, yeah, I mean, you wonder why even, it's not even worth making changes with your drinking. The cost is just too risky. It's going to cost you waste too much. So that the strategy is, what else can they argue? We've already argued this side with them. What else can they say but go toward making you know the change that makes any sense? So if we land on the side that says, yeah, maybe making this change is too much trouble for you, then the only direction they can go is toward change talk. So the paradoxical intervention there, again, the goal is to increase change talk. Okay. How... Is that answer? Yeah, did yeah, that did. No, okay. that, 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 was, that was great. So my, um, my early training was mm-hmm. in hypnosis. And for me, when I learned hypnosis, it opened up the world for me because you begin to see how so much of how we respond to anything is based on can be shaped in language right um one of 
a simple example was I had a friend of mine who was talking about you know this girl and he liked her but he didn't know how to ask her out and um, I asked him you know I mean does does anybody wake up in the morning and think man I don't want to be asked out and he went on to ask her out and part of what happened for him I believe in that conversation was that he had a shift in perspective he was thinking about the situation from his perspective right and when I asked that question he suddenly in her perspective which is a different you know perspective where things can be different and it sounds to me like MI um, is also looking very closely at language and how language mm-hmm. influences perception and behavior so how has this like approach changed you as a person? Because for me, when I did that, That's a good question. everything was like, I was like, wow, like things aren't what reality is when, isn't what people think it is. Because yeah. I, then, I, then, I then began to see people inadvertently um, evoking things they didn't want to have happen. Or I saw a really good therapist doing things, but not knowing how they did them. And I would imagine that you, you know, See, see people doing similar sorts of things. And so I, I would imagine that that's changed you and how you think about language and communication. And when you see two people talking, you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're taking this out of change, which is pushing them more towards, you know, not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. I see it in my own family, which I'm like, I can't use in my with my family. And I'm like, oh, stop nagging him. <laughs> um, it only just makes things worse. I will say... I've, so I also have been trained to measure whether people are doing MI or not. So in fidelity measurements, you know, integrity type stuff. How Are people, one, doing MI? And if so, how well are they doing it? We have assessments to, to code actual interventionist behavior. So I would say I find myself coding other people's work all the time like when I'm watching I do clinical supervision uh, with pre-doctoral students and postdocs but even just other therapists I'm thinking all right that's an open question before five open questions before one reflection so I see it everywhere you're right I see it when I'm running or conducting small group exercises in my workshops I see it in everyday conversations I see it in stores like when I see salespeople you know, trying to persuade someone to buy a certain product, or maybe the salesperson is being more respectful of someone's space and trust that he or she is going to pick the product that they think is right for them. And when that person's ready to ask a question about the product, they'll come to me. People have different ways of trying to influence choice. It's very interesting. I see am I? Um, now I'm having a brain fart. I was thinking of another situation where I see in my own, my own relationship with my primary care. <laughs> he doesn't do MI, but I notice he's very like when I go to see him and I say, you know, what, I had this concern. He shoots off a good two, three reflections first before he starts asking me questions. And his first question is, what do you think we should do here? And I even asked him one day, I was like, do you do MI? But he doesn't. <laughs> he said, he's like, yes. He's like, no, I heard about it, but I don't do it. But it's, but, you know, it's just, so MI is like, think about it as the spirit and the method. So there's the method that we're really talking about. And there's also the spirit. 
EXO has a very collaborative spirit. It's built on partnership. It's respectful of, respectful of people's ability to make their own decisions. There's the evocation side. We're calling forth ideas and things. You know, he had that down. And I think a lot of people sort of going back to your comment, I think, Jordan, like many providers say they're doing MI and they're not really practicing. I can't say they're not practicing. It depends on the person. But I think some people I come across are not practicing the method, but they've got the spirit down when they show up to an introductory workshop. They've got the spirit already. They're wanting to really learn the method. But, you know, they think, you know, well, I'm collaborative in my way, so I'm, I'm doing it in my well, practicing the spirit, but not the method. And certainly there are many providers who are practicing the method, too. I think people confuse the two. So, Bill, you mentioned music. Bill Miller, one of the writers on MI and founders of MI, says, if you can listen to music in five minutes, you can do MI in five minutes. Like there's sort of a harmony behind it. And then the spirit is sort of the harmony behind the words. Like when you listen to a song for the first time, what, what pulls you or what are you drawn to first? Is it the words or the beat? Right? It's the beat. So the spirit is like the beat behind the music. So the reflections can be awesome, but if not done in a collaborative way, it's not going to work. It really has to be both at the same time. Yeah. It's also like a long-winded answer to your question. No, I mean, <laughs> I think that was perfect. Um, and I think for me, where I am now, you know, I think I have the spirit, but I don't have, you know, I have like an ounce of technique, right? Um, and even that has been so transformative. But I've realized that the shift that I'm working on now is with other providers. You know, I'm okay with a client, a patient coming in and being ambivalent about change. But when I see someone else who goes, oh, they just don't want to, they, uh, uh, that's right. what I'm going to be like, oh, you're supposed to know better. <laughs> like, that's what just ties me into a knot. And yeah. I mean... Yes. Do you have any wisdom on handling that one? Where you're just... Yeah, we have to remember that we as providers are ambivalent also. I mean, just using, just being, we make, we're human beings too. We make big lifestyle decisions. We're trying to figure out whether to buy a car or not. We're trying to, we're trying to figure out, you know, things and, and, you know, we are not immune that we often have to go through this process of ambivalence in order to commit to change. It's no different for us. How, how can we expect for people to do anything different, our clients or patients to do anything different? So you would basically take a step back then and say, okay, this provider is also ambivalent about how they feel about this person. They are frustrated oh, and, mm-hmm. you know, they also want to reach out and help this person. So, and there's the other side. Now we're talking about training in MI. So, Believe you me, in a training room, these same things happen. There's always that one person. There's usually that one person says, this is not going to work for me. This is not going to work for my clients. That's just sustained talk. There's you or, you know, just ambivalent. Like, I really want to learn more about MI. I want to practice it. You know, I love it. People are like sponges. And they're like, at the same time, I'm afraid that I'm not going to have the time to do MI. You know, I don't have an hour like you, Dr. Bethia Walsh, to sit with clients. And, and I'm like, 
and I reflect that. Like you, you know, you are really concerned about this time commitment. At the same time, this really fits with your style, and you can really see it might be a part of how you relate to people. And you know, then I might provide some information and say there are studies that say you can do MI in fifteen minutes. There's people who are doing who are health, health educators working in emergency departments and hospitals alongside people excuse me, who are on gurneys and things, and they've got maybe 10 minutes to do an MI intervention. And it can be done, and you can be effective in that. So you don't need a whole hour to do MI. You can do MI again. Bill says if you can listen to music in five minutes, you can do MI in five minutes. If you can listen to a song in 10 minutes, you can do MI in 10 minutes. You don't need all of that time to do MI. Or even practice with the spirit of MI. I even do evaluations, I think, with the spirit of motivational interviewing. So I'm not sort of just steamrolling through an evaluation. I might use reflections every couple of questions or before I move on to the next section, I might say, you know, I wonder if it's okay if we can shift gears and talk about this. You know, we got enough about your background. I wonder if we can talk about your history, you know, those sorts of things. Something you said, I have a quick side question. Do you watch TV and think this, that's not real, real? Like, after I've become, and maybe this is just me, certain certain shows I watch, and I watch how people interact, and I go, no, they wouldn't do that. Like, like it feels so... <laughs> so, like, do you ever watch TV and someone, you know, um, talks, a mom continues, can pushes for, for change before mm-hmm. her daughter's ready and her daughter goes with it, and you're like, that's not how it works in, in real life. Do you ever, like, <laughs> does, does that ever happen to you? Oh, I'm sure it has. I can't think of any, like, specific example, but, I mean, I'm sure. And, of course, whenever therapy is depicted on television, I just... Cringe. Oh, my gosh. uh, I just, I'm like... That is not an example. It's so worse. I actually saw one actual good depiction (laughs) of therapy, and it was on The Simpsons. Like, the last episode of The Simpsons... (laughs) Lisa goes to see a student therapist, and I'm like, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> He's on the rest of and when we see it, we're like, you know what? Kudos. Uh, when I don't know whether you guys have seen Insecure, but when Molly went to a th- see her therapist, I was like, that was pretty good. I was pretty impressed. Not to I mention usually, the therapist's office is very nice. <laughs> I usually find therapists on, um, who aren't therapists. So, like, I watch Star Trek The Next Generation. And I hate that counselor. I hate her. She's the worst. But Whoopi Goldberg is incredible. <laughs> like, Whoopi Guinan is just like, I'm like, oh, why do you need both of these people? <laughs> She's so, this is so. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure I've seen some some uh, examples of that. I just can't think of any. But, yeah. yeah. TV special. So, we got to wind it down. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, what do you feel like is on the horizon? You know, what's the what's the model or the frontier in MI or some other field that you're like, that is going to be golden 10, 20, 30 years? Mm, that's a great question. So where is MI going, you, you're asking about? Is that MI right? MI or anything in the broader field. Mm. So personally for me, I think neuro, uh-huh. neurofeedback has a huge potential mm-hmm. to do a lot of good, but it's not talked about yet. Yeah, there's some research on that. Like, and you know what? And I keep promising myself I'm going to look at these papers, like the intersection between 
MI, neurofeedback, the neuroscience stuff. I think it, it's pretty amazing. I think I read something a couple of years ago, but I haven't been on top of that. That's very cool. MI has taken off like a rocket. It's crazy. I mean, and it's very interesting. I know we need to wrap up, but just for the sake of making a, a quick last point, one of the unique things about MI is that when we, use, when we develop an intervention, like a therapy, right, we usually study the components of it. We study the active ingredients. We study the mechanisms of change. And then when, once we really know it, then we test it in labs. And then we test it in real-life situations. MI had the complete opposite trajectory. It caught on so quickly that immediately people started researching it in clinical trials, like the ones that I trained on, and then in real life situations, like the community research projects and things of that nature. And now we're just at the point where we're trying to better understand how it works, who it works for. We've, we've learned a lot there. You know, I don't, I don't know that I have an answer to that question. Um, Bill probably has a better answer to the question. I can tell you, I've seen in my books on like, am I in dentistry? Am I in healthcare services? There are people who studied MI in different, all around the world. So I belong to the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which is an inter international group of trainers uh, developed by Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, who wrote this book on MI, and just studied all over the world. MI on safe water consumption in South Africa, there were some papers on that. So I guess what I'm saying is the study of it has been so broad and so early I'm not even sure where it might go next, but MI and neuroscience is one, one place where I think people might go just studying it with different populations. I personally would continue like to see more papers on MI and sort of cultural nuances and uh, sort of how it plays out cross-culturally, which, I mean, one of the answers is you're working with people's value systems. So right there, it pretty much can, is a good cross-cultural method, in my opinion. And I just, I look forward to seeing where it goes. It's very young, you know, it's, it was developed sort of in the 80s, took off in the 90s, 2000s, and it's got a, a full life ahead of it. So yeah. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I feel like we're, um, I feel like we're in a really weird time in therapy because we finally have enough research that we have a few things that work really well, but, mm -hmm. um, but they are still relatively new to the field, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, like, it, MI, right? Like, I mean, MI was developed in, in, the, in the 80s, right? I think you just said that. But that's Pretty what much, I yeah. remember. Mm -hmm. The early, yeah. The early 80s, yeah. And, like, it's just now becoming a big deal. The ACE mm -hmm. study, you know, adverse childhood experiences, right? That mm -hmm. was done in the 80s. EFT was created, emotionally focused therapy, for a couple yeah. created in, in the 80s. And 40 years later, these guys are finally um, blowing up. And it's fascinating because we've had people who are great therapists before this, but they could not teach other people how to do what they did. Yes. And so we're in this weird space where we have some of these things that are finally sort of um, out there. Um, but we're still at the beginning of, like, the training phase. You know, like you said, you know, most – I would – you know, I think – Every graduate student should have a class on MI because if you don't start with motivation and client engagement, like nothing you do after that is going to work. If you don't start with right, foundation, right. 
Um, but most people aren't trained in it. You know, it's not even still. And if and if and if it and if they are, it's you know, write a paper on it. You might watch one hour video, mm-hmm. you know, and then you move on to something else, which is not the same as being trained in it. So right. We're in this weird, this weird moment in therapy. We are. We really are. And yeah, you're right. It, it definitely parallels with other approaches and things. Uh, train. Yeah, I think training is a good direction to keep going in. We definitely, as men, you know, run around the world, do trainings. I have people from around the world come to my trainings as well as around the country, people are thirsty for this stuff. And still I'm getting requests for like introductory trainings and things because people want to feel more effective. Providers want to feel more effective and probably less burnout in the work that they're doing. And and my pair is very well with CBT, sort of other interventions and things. You can do it as a standalone method. You can integrate it. So I would, I would actually like to see how am I, I don't even know what this would look like, but translate into like, everyday sort of for the lay person and you know we can't really do MI with family members because we're invested in the outcome that's sort of one time when it's not okay to do MI but just this idea of teaching parents how to explore ambivalence with kids to not try to fix it all the time to sort of just sit with the problem sometimes people just want to feel heard they don't want to be fixed they don't want to be corrected and in that, sometimes people discover their own answers. So I'd like to see it, sort of see it go a little bit, you know, down a little bit further and, and um, you know, into how people can integrate this in their everyday lives in hopes, in hopes of having better quality relationships with people. So before I give you the full to say whatever you want to end on, what's on your <laughs> bookshelf? You know, what are the next three books that you're like, oh, these are what I'm going to, you know, Ooh, okay, so my first is Am I in Groups? I've been wanting to read this book forever. Um, I have, I'm trained as a psychodynamic therapist, believe it or not. That was sort of where my home was before I found Am I. And so I have had a lot of group therapy experience and just want to learn even more about Am I in Groups. I've done, I've used Am I in Group Therapy before, but you know, just want to read up on it. Other books, gosh, and I'm such a bookworm. Um, let's see. Oh, well, to move away from the academic world, I'm Not Judging You by uh, Lavi Ajayi. I want to read, which is about a couple years old, but that's on my list. And... Those are probably my two for now. I can't think of any more. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. What's, what is that last one about? I've never heard of that one. So, awesomely, uh, Lovey is a social media influencer, blogger, talks a lot about social activism and talks a lot, just like a lot of social commentary and is absolutely hilarious. Like, she's really funny. So I was, I started reading her book probably um, before, actually early in my pregnancy last year. So um, never really finished it, didn't get too far in it, but could not put it down. It was absolutely hilarious. But she talks about just a lot of different issues in her book, such as sort of that 
weird moment when you go out with your friends and somebody orders a whole bunch of food and and walks away leaving the bill with everybody else. And then she also talks about rape culture. Like there's a whole, you know, she goes from that to like a, a chapter about rape culture and, you know, how women deal with catcalling and what it's another chapter on like what it, her life is like in with intersecting identities. She's a second generation Nigerian in America, I think. And sort of how that intersects with other parts of her life. It's just really interesting. So that's sort of me stepping away from, you know, just what I do every day to just sort of getting in there. So if I had the time and a way, um, you know, if I had a cave, I would, I would immerse myself in that book. Yeah. I, I, uh, I read um, Baratunde Thurston's How to Be Black. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's kind of in the... Oh, mm-hmm. man. The only book I've ever laughed out loud at. And probably <laughs> the first time my wife saw me cry because I was just laughing so hard. And it, This is like that book. Oh, yeah. yeah. It sounds like it was the same. She's absolutely hilarious. She yeah. is so hilarious. Yeah. And I'm sure there are other books. Just I actually keep a running book list because I love reading. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this immensely. Same here. Uh, I look forward to our future conversations on racial yeah. identity. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I'm just so jazzed. Any closing words, thoughts, parting, um, parting words of wisdom? Closing words. By, by Maya Angelou, anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. Which I, al- I always use Maya's quotes during my trainings. I would say for anyone who's interested in learning more about motivational interviewing to go to motivationalinterviewing.com. That's the website for Mint, the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. And for anyone who's on the journey of already learning it by, might be frustrated or feeling a little discouraged because it is a complex clinical method just like any other and, you know, it's sometimes messing up your golf game when you've been practicing one way for many years and you're learning and buying a new method. So just be patient with yourself and to know that it will come naturally. Reflections will come more naturally. It's going to feel like a second skin eventually. So just be patient with yourself. And also, in terms of my practice, I have a few things going on, if I may plug a little bit. Absolutely. So, okay, I have... So under my practice, I offer yearly MI workshops, and I've been mixing it up in the past two years. So I usually offer a two-day introductory workshop, and that is for people who have had little exposure to MI, who want to learn more, and it's a great opportunity to come and learn more about MI, what MI is not, and to really learn what it might be like to use motivational interviewing and exercises. And anecdotally, that's the feedback I get from people. They learn the most in sort of those role plays and those real plays we do. So that's a two-day workshop. I actually um, am, have already done an intro training this year, but I might offer another one. But I am offering an intermediate advanced level workshop next Friday and Saturday, as a matter of fact, May 18th. Um, and 19th, and that's here in Atlanta. And that's for people who have already been practicing MI in the setting and who want to smooth out nuances and learn more advanced techniques, refine reflections, things of that nature, um, be better with responding to change talk and things of that nature. 
August 24th, I'm offering a one-day training for people who want to supervise MI practice or who want to practice supervision with an MI style. And that is a C workshop for licensed professional counselors. And on November 9th and 10th, I am offering a two-day workshop on MI coding. So this is an introduction to a coding system so that you can learn how to rate someone else's use of MI to determine how, first of all, if they're first doing MI, so how well are they doing it? And so these are all continuing education workshops. To learn more, you can go to my website, www.bethiacps.com slash upcoming workshops. And I can also be found on social media, Facebook, Bethia CPS, Twitter, and Instagram at Dr. Dr. B's Psych Blurbs. So there you have it. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed it, uh, and I look yeah, forward. Thanks for thanks for talking to us. Yeah, this has been awesome, and my first podcast. I've done radio before, but this is my first podcast. So, yeah. so you guys had a wonderful experience. It's good talking with you. Good.